Hello, and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast that reminds you every week that award season really is a year-round event. I'm Vanity Fair's film critic Richard Lawson, filling in for Mike Hogan, our digital director who's out today, who has been filling in for Katie Rich, our deputy editor who's been out since June. Uh, but I am joined with Joanna Robinson, our senior writer from the Bay Area. Hello. Hi. So we're going to try to do this with just the two of us, which is <laughs> kind of crazy. Well, Mike will come in later because we do have an interview with Derek Sanfrance, who is the director of The Light Between Oceans, which is a movie that is coming out this week um, that you, Joanna and Mike did. Was that a good convo? It was great. Yeah. Derek is uh, hes a very unusual director, so we mm-hmm. had a lot of fun stories about his process. Well, I, w- I wish I'd been there to kind of fangirl over The Place Between the Pines, which is a movie I love. Or Place Beyond the Pines? Where, what is that movie called? Beyond, beyond the Pines. too many prepositions. Between yeah. Oceans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I never know where the article is supposed to go. Yeah. I feel like very slowly. I wonder what his, his next title is going to be, like 20 words long. I'm, I'm, I can't wait. <laughs> like some like net natural element so he, he's done trees he's done water i don't know what he'll do next mountains i think in a, like an under the tuscan sun remake maybe oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually i would i would watch that i'd be first that. in line yeah. okay so we have a kind of a quick little show here because i'm going away to telluride and then toronto tomorrow morning so i need to get home and pack and get ready for that but because we've talked a lot about toronto i just wanted to talk briefly about Telluride, which is not formally announcing its schedule until tomorrow. They do this kind of crazy thing where they only announce the schedule the day before the festival starts. But, you know, if you talk to enough people, you can kind of figure out what movies are going to be there. And there's one in particular I want to talk about, which is Una. Do you know anything about Una, Joanna? Uh, Just that a couple people are very, very excited about it, including you, right? Yeah, I have this kind of sneaking suspicion that it could be kind of big, even though it's been sort of under the radar until now. So I don't know if you read anything about it, but there's a play called Blackbird that was just on Broadway with Jeff Daniels and Michelle Williams. Yes. um, That was off Broadway with Jeff Daniels and Alison Pill back when I first moved to New York. I think it was around 2006, 2007. Got great reviews. It's a really dark play about a woman re-entering a man's life unexpectedly um, and this was a man that he had had a sexual relationship with when she was very young Um, and she's clearly not in good shape as an adult and he is sort of trying to live his life past that crime and trying to kind of rebuild his life so it's a kind of a two-hander and they've adapted it into a movie called Una, starring Rooney Mara and the great Ben Mendelsohn. And also Riz Ahmed is in it. Did you know that? Uh, yes. A recent night of fame. Future he, Star Wars fame. He, yeah, future Star Wars fame. That's that's going to be big for him. But I'm c- very curious about who he's playing in the movie because they're really in the play. There's just these two characters. And Tara Fitzgerald's also in it. So yeah, they've they padded it out a little bit, it looks like. Do you remind me who that is? She was in uh, Brassed Off and also Game of Thrones. She was Stannis' crazy wife on Game of Thrones. Oh, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, I like her. Yeah, me too. I mean, she didn't get a ton to do on Game of Thrones, but that was an interesting character anyway. Oh, and it's directed by this guy who did a stage production of Streetcar Named Desire with Gillian Anderson that was a huge hit in London a couple of years ago and then was just in Brooklyn. Oh, I right. saw that was really amazing and kind of vamped up and sexy but but still like a really good version of that play so so it's got a lot of pedigree in place which is exciting and i think the fact that it's going to be at telluride i mean you know it'll be confirmed by the time this episode comes out so that's going to be at telluride it's also going to be at toronto that kind of leads me to believe this could be a thing in the way that room was a thing which was at telluride and then toronto so that's kind of exciting and i think honestly the biggest most exciting thing about it is rooney mara who 
I don't know. Are you are you a Rooney fan, Joanna? It's hard. I admire her. I think she's very talented. There is a coldness and a remove to her that a lot of people respond to. She's got like a strange studied blankness to her that I think a lot of people can put things onto. And I just can't. You know, I thought she was really good in Carol and actually quite warm in Carol compared to other things. But I wasn't the biggest fan of her Girl with the Dragon Tattoo performance, especially in light of, you know, that it had just been made quite well by Nomi Rupace. So I don't know, I guess I'm mixed on her and it depends on the role. I see her talent. I think she's very, very smart. Um, But I'm just not always sure... I get the emotional connection I'm looking for from her. Yeah, and she does keep getting cast in these sort of alien kind of cold parts in a way. Right. I mean, she was warm in Carol, but also, you know, that movie itself is sort of wintry and stayed and it's sort of bottled up, buttoned up. But the interesting thing about this role in, in this upcoming movie, if it, you know, I don't know how similar it's going to be to the play, but this is a sort of very emotionally raw kind of unwound young woman that she's going to be playing. So that could be a whole new mode for her that I'm really curious to see. And we know that Ben Mendelsohn on the raw setting is a sight to behold. Yeah. So I think he will be a really good scene partner for her. Like if someone can bring that out of her, he definitely would. I think. Yeah. I mean, he's such a good actor and he got a lot of acclaim for Bloodline, the Netflix show, the first season of, you know, and he's done great work in movies. Also, speaking of Riz Ahmed, he will also be in Rogue One, right? Right, with the flashiest, whitest cape you've ever seen. Yeah, he looks great. So So he's maybe about to break big in the movies, and this could be part of that narrative. This mysterious movie that, you know, we don't know much about, but seems like, I mean, obviously the producers, whoever must know something about or trust that it's going to be good because they wouldn't show it at these festivals if they were worried. Oh, I should say, this is completely unrelated to Una, but speaking of showing things at festivals that there was one late breaking bit of news i don't know if you heard this joanna coming out of toronto which is lbj the rob reiner movie starring woody harrelson right right Um, they i think two days ago pulled all their press screenings at toronto wow that's never a good sign not a good sign at all we are a fan of rob reiner he was a guest on the show so no knock on him but yeah maybe it's not the movie they were hoping for (laughs) a fan of woody too It's hard to avoid those narratives. A sequel to our discussion about Nate Parker last week, I think, is that he won't be doing any press in front of Toronto. I don't think we talked about this. We talked about a a different screening that had been canceled. The AFI, yeah. Yeah, the AFI screening, but that he won't be talking at all at TIFF. Is Is that right? Some press. Yeah, yeah. That they won't be doing a press conference for Birth of a Nation at TIFF, which is unusual given it's such a marquee film at the festival. Absolutely. I'm sure they had one initially. I mean, so do you think that this is them trying to kind of distance him from the movie, which is sort of impossible considering he stars in it, wrote it, directed it, and produced it? Yeah, I feel like it's just triage at this point. They're like, well... Yeah, maybe we can let the movie speak for itself and not have him have to answer any questions about his uh, own experiences. Right. But I don't think you can get all the way to Oscar doing that. No, you need to have a visible public face for your movie. Someone who's glad-handing at luncheons and dinners, you know, Peggy Siegel events or whatever happens in L.A., you need that. Right. And it's been crucial for other campaigns in the past. So, yeah, I mean, it is interesting to watch these sort of fortunes rise and fall you know one time sure oscar things they get pushed to the side and then something newer and smaller or whatever like una potentially emerges and i mean it's kind of the fun of it i just wish that this particular year with birth of a nation there's nothing really fun about that story at all so it's just all kind of dismaying to watch but i don't know maybe that movie will have a second act later after toronto or something because it could still screen well there right 
it's silly probably to try to cobble together a narrative before Telluride and Toronto. Like you're going to come back from these festivals with a much clearer sense of what's going on. But our friend over at Vulture, Kyle Buchanan wrote this great piece called early Oscar predictions in an unsettled year, where he did a really good job talking to all of these publicists who were kind of baffled by this year. I think the whole birth of a nation thing, not to make that conversation only about the Oscar race, But I think it getting hobbled so early by this has left everyone just sort of flummoxed as to what's going to happen. And he sort of went down category by category to talk about how it is right now, very early, but right now more of an open race than we've seen in a long time. And once again, that might just all close off and shut down after Richard and might come back from Toronto with a full report. But... Yeah, that was a fascinating article to me. Because if those publicists were being honest with him, which, why wouldn't they be? Because they were all speaking anonymously. They were all, like, throwing their hands up in the air going, I don't know, man. That article is really interesting. And I think that we've all been feeling that unsettledness and that sort of, like, the lack of an anointed thing, which is probably why I'm trying to read tea leaves that I'm not always that good at reading. Like, with Una, for example, where I'm like, oh, maybe this is it. You know, maybe this is the movie. I don't see that this dark movie about a pedophile and his victim being like a best picture nominee. But then again, Room, it was also about a sexual predator and his victim. And, you know, it was a dark, small movie. So maybe, maybe there is more of a sort of awards the appetite for that than I think. But I don't know. I think Una is one to keep an eye on and I will happily tweet about it after I see it in Telluride uh, from the mountains, and then I will write about it in length. I will eagerly read both the tweets and the review. Well, thank you. (laughs) And I hope that (laughs) I hope all our listeners will do the same. (laughs) All right. So I think that, yeah, we should move on to this interview you guys did with Derek Sinfrance about an interesting movie that, you know, you and I, Joanna, should talk about after we run the interview. Dearest Isabel, I can't stop thinking about the time I spent with you. Dearest Tom, when I first saw you, I felt like I knew you, and I couldn't stop seeing my life with you. To be loved by you (laughs) allowed me to feel again. Hi, Derek. You're on with Mike and Joanna. Hello. Hey, Derek. Hi. Hey, how are you? Good, good. Um, I just want to check with Sam, our producer, that we're everything sounds good. Uh, just w- one second. We're gonna get your volume cranked up a little bit. We're literally have a microphone set up next to a speakerphone, so that is how high tech this is. Oh, nice. This gonna sound good. It's gonna sound yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a new way to record vocals or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should might might have wanted to do this for your whole movie, you know, for all the dialogue. Exactly. <laughs> I did try it one time. I had my mom as an actor, and one of my uh, my first student feature, Brother Tide, and, and I couldn't get her voice to sound right, so I had her call me on the phone and record it. It still didn't make the cut. I had to cut her out of the movie. Really? Did, what kind of reaction do you get from your mom when you tell her she's cut out of the movie? I told her she sounded too sexy, um, <laughs> kind of like Kathleen Turner. So, you know. It's all right. It, being a filmmaker is hard. You have to be ruthless, you know? Yeah. Once you, the, the point is, like once you can cut your mom out of your movie... Um, you can kind of do anything. 
Well, yeah, that's a good words to live by, I think. Uh, well, well, yeah. we're all very excited to be talking to you about The Light Between Oceans, this fabulous new film. And I just wanted to jump right in and ask you, you know, I know that your process is a lot different than most people's and you really strive to create the conditions for realistic behavior, really, from your actors. Can you talk a little bit about what you did on this film to make it more real and less kind of artificial and manufactured? Yeah, well, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I spent uh, like a dozen years making docs between my student feature that I told you about and and uh, Blue Valentine, and in that time, I just became an addict for life, you know, for hmm. real-life situations. I just, uh, and the thought of going back to movies and all of a sudden kind of fabricating everything felt very disingenuous to me and just kind of boring, you know, and honestly, I have a hard time watching movies that... Yeah, I, I watch docs more than I watch narratives because I just find a truthfulness in them and a and a, and a humanity in them that that can't be replicated. Um, yeah. So when I'm making my movies, I'm I'm really a documentarian of fiction. Um, I'm trying to find a place where story stops and where life begins. And with performances, I'm trying to find a place where the performance stops and where being begins or just human behavior begins. And um. My process, I've been developing it over 20-something years of, of how to kind of instigate something in the actors. And so with this movie, look, we, I, I spent like four months scouring the Southern Hemisphere, Australia, New Zealand, to find the perfect location of a, you know, where there was a lighthouse. And I ended up finding this place called Cape Campbell in New Zealand, which was isolated, as was the story in, in the book and in the screenplay, with, you know, which I wrote. Um, and it was crucial to me to find an isolated place. This place, the only way to get there was, you know, on an hour and a half on a, on a bumpy dirt road. So there was not another human being within 100 miles of this place. And I, that was important to me because the idea of shooting at this lighthouse location and then going to, like, a boutique hotel at night just felt like we weren't going to uh, be living it. Um, right. And so, you know, then I, I can, you know, I... I I, I, I fought and fought and fought to get trailers out there, and I, I fought and fought and fought to get, uh, you know, the smallest crew possible, the smallest footprint possible of of the filmmaking machine, and, uh, you know, and the studio backed me on it. How many people is that by the end? You know, like, it's like it was like a 12-person crew out wow. there. It was myself, it was my AD, it was the, the DP with a couple of his people, there's the sound guy with one of his guys, there's a producer very small you know we're not obsessed with with makeup what we're not we don't have a ton of gear we're we're trying to you know we're in a we're in a, a place that's so beautiful that if you just were to take a you know any like four-year-old kid could take a picture on his cell phone and uh, and have it be beautiful you know it would get like a million instagram i don't know i don't i don't really do that stuff but anyway so we were in a in a in amazing place picturesque place and uh so I, I had to ask the actors if they would live there with me. And I remember Michael Fassbender, when I first, you know, proposed the idea of living there, um, you know, he said, is it really necessary? And it felt like he was, he was like Lawrence Olivier telling Dustin Hoffman to try acting. It's easier, you know. And I said, look, Michael, this is a gift I'm giving, I'm trying to give you. I fought for this gift. I was like, please just give it a chance. And so he said, okay, I'll give it a night. Flash forward to five weeks later, I had to like pull him kicking and screaming out of that place. Really? Um, he was just going to yeah, give you one night? 
he was going to give me one night, and it, and it turned into a, a place, and he'll tell you this, that he, where he didn't want to leave. And, yeah. you know, what I was able to do then with him and with Alicia was I was, they were able to live there. The first three days of shooting, Michael did nothing but polish the lighthouse lens, um, you know, cook his own breakfast with eggs he would get from the chicken coop, um, tend to his garden, uh, make his bed, um, basically keep up with chores on the island and survive. And he, we spent three days with him, with him doing that. And I remember on the third day, he was in his the wood shop there, building, you know, repairing some stuff. And um, I asked him if he would just pray for himself. And he sat down and he started to pray. And I just remember Michael broke down at that moment. And he wow. had... It was like a, you know, I grew up Catholic, and there's that thing in transmutation, I think it's called, where like water and wine become actually one, and it's what happened with Michael and the character of Tom. They became one at that moment, and it was because they were living it, and because one, you know, because he couldn't separate himself from the guy anymore, and, you know, the same thing eventually then happened with Alicia, and it was, you know, what you see in the movie is, is... is a witness of, of all of these moments. And I have to say, I'm, you know, I feel like uh, I, I always have to make the c- comparison to being a chef, right? I, I feel like a chef has to make the same meal 300 times a night, and it always has to be, like, at a super high level, and it has to be perfect. It has to be consistent. And as a filmmaker, I, I don't relate to that of the chef at all. You know, I've, I, as a filmmaker, I am... Uh, I'm going for moments. I'm I'm yeah. hunting for a for a single moment that can't be replicated. You know, I'm I that's why I don't rehearse and I don't really audition with people. I try to find these fleeting moments of life that you capture with the camera and then they're preserved for all time. Between Eva and Ryan on a place beyond the pines and Alicia and Michael in Light Between the Oceans, you're getting sort of a reputation for being something of a matchmaker. Would you credit the blurring between reality and acting for bringing these enduring Hollywood romances together? Um, you know, I, all I'm trying to do is is create a connection on the screen. Uh, I really am trying to create a connection between my actors. You know, I want to put them in places where they can, you know, I'm making movies about human relationships, right? Right. And I'm making movies about intimacy. So my entire purpose on set and when I'm making a movie, is to try to be as truthful as possible to that. And so one of the first ways to do that is I have to cast the movies right. And yes. so I have to, you know, I cast Michael Fassbender first, or I cast Ryan Gosling first, and I have to then think, who's going to work with this person? You know, and I have to meet a lot of actors. And, for instance, when I met uh, Alicia, after meeting, you know, a ton of, of actors for that role, she, I felt like, her and Michael would go together like salt and pepper. You know, they would be like, they could be like Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan. I just felt like they would make each other better. They would compliment each other, you know, as performers. And I just felt like they would fit in, in a beautiful way together. And, you know, the film, you know, whatever happens behind the scenes happens behind the scenes. It's not, it's really none of my business. You know, um, I'm, I'm pleased that when anybody finds love, you know, it's, I think, you know, I'm making movies about about love and, uh, you know, making love stories. And the fact that that has happened a couple times on my movies, I can't take too much credit for that. I do feel fortunate, though, that the movies are witnessing something real. 
Right, you're capturing a a real connection that's that's happening. Yeah, that's that's something you can't, you know, again, that's moments you can't replicate you know and well now we're counting on this we have high expectations for you everyone has to be mr and mrs smith basically (laughs) it's brad and angelina or bus you know yeah um, yeah. Uh (laughs) can i ask you a question though how much like are you filming does the do the cameras ever go off do you guys ever like stop and have some drinks and play like uh card games or is it just like everything that we do is is in the film no absolutely so so much of it i mean you know, you shoot for, you know, the, the allotted time in the day, 12 hours a day. I do shoot a lot of footage. I do shoot a lot of things that don't make it in the movie. My, you know, Michael had to milk a goat, and that never made it in the movie, but he spent two hours learning how to milk a goat. And, um, you know, there's there's a ton of stuff we do, but then there's a ton of just life. There's a ton of things right. that we do it. You know, that, and, and, and there's, you know, yeah, we have dinner together. We have We have barbecues together out there. We had dance parties, you know, we would, you know, watch. Well, and Fassbender uh, can dance. We know, that we know. I've seen her. Oh, yeah, and so can Alicia. She's oh, yeah? That, you know, trained ballet dancer. I mean, well, of course, can, yeah. She can actually embarrass him on the dance floor because she's, anyway. And is that, that right? I want to hear more knew, about this. this well, is, I, that's why I knew she, that's one of the reasons I knew they could work together was because she can hold her own. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that was, to me, Fassbender, to me, is undeniably one of our greatest actors of our of this generation and yeah you know if i'm gonna make another metaphor he's like uh the heavyweight champ yeah when i met alicia I, I felt like she was a thoroughbred so i all of a sudden i had muhammad ali versus seabiscuit and <laughs> muhammad ali is used to knocking people out in the second round yeah yeah but here you go seabiscuit's not she's inexhaustible she keeps going and so you know all of a sudden we go to like the 30th round muhammad ali versus seabiscuit and so i just felt like they would you know they would keep it going, you know. She, she, she. He pushed her, and she pushed him, which was a beautiful thing to witness. You know, to watch two actors kind of continually raise the bar for each other, and then you know, and then you know, the cameras go off, and we go to bed, and we were living in this in these trailers on literally on the edge of the world, and you know, we were in one of the windiest places on earth, and so at three in the morning. Some nights it felt like we were going to get rolled into the ocean by the power of the wind, and so all of a sudden you would wake up at 5 a.m. to, you know, shoot this pictorial sunrise. But we were frazzled because we yeah. we were we none of us slept, and all of a sudden that, um, you know, the natural elements all of a sudden started to affect us. And to me, that is also you know I as a filmmaker I'm try I'm always ba- balancing this control versus chaos and i like chaotic things in my movies i like embracing weather i like it when a dog comes when you put a dog in a shot and it it screws everything up you know i like crying babies you know there was in this movie there's the baby cries and you know early on they were you know the actors saying well we got what are we going to do about the baby you know do we have a doll or something for this i was like no just if the baby's crying you're the parent just quiet it down, yeah. you know, like, yeah. you know, and, and all of a sudden it, we're dealing with real things and we're not making, uh, you know, a movie and, and we're, that's absolutely perfect, you know, and the moments we're constructing aren't, you know, uh, aren't, aren't about, you know, about perfection. They're about human, uh, they're about humanity and, and they're about the imperfection. To me, that's the, that's the beauty of, of, of people is their imperfections. It's not what, it's not their game show host teeth. It's, it's uh, their flaws that I think are beautiful. I want to ask you about uh, Alicia. You cast her well before her enormous 
2015 and her Oscar win, how does having all of a sudden an Oscar winning actress or another Oscar winning actress in your movie, in, uh, in addition to Rachel, how does it change sort of what happens with your movie? Alicia's success. Oh, I, you know, I, I'm not. I, I don't. I'm not quite sure. But you know, the movie hasn't come out yet, so I'm not sure what kind of, you know, reception it's going to have or what kind of life it's going to have. I, I will say that, you know, I, when Alicia won her Academy Award, I was, I, I was like the proud papa on the sidelines. You know, <laughs> I was, I was so psyched for her, and 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 also I wasn't surprised in the least bit. Um, you know, when I was trying to cast this role of of Isabel, you know. She's a very specific creature. Um, she's all impulse. You know, if she if she falls in love with you, she's going to ask you to marry her. If she finds a baby in a rowboat, she's going to want to keep it as her own. If if you betray her, she's going to never talk to you again. And so I needed to find an actor that was brave enough to just have her emotions on the surface at all times. And I remember telling my casting director, I said, I need you to cast, I need to, we need to find Jenna Rollins from Woman Under the Influence or yeah. Vivian Lee from Gone with the Wind, or we need to find Emily Watson from Breaking the Waves. And she says, well, then you need Alyssa Vikander. And I said, who? You know? Because yeah. yeah. I had no idea who she was. And then I met with her and and I saw that, that thoroughbred. Well, can I you know, drill I in on that. this a little bit, Derek? Because I'm curious, as a director and as a with a professional's eye, uh, I, I can say as a as an audience member what I think is great about Alicia. But to you specifically, what is it that she has besides just it? You know, the it quality. She has courage in spades. Yeah, um, courage is not the absence of fear. To me, courage is the presence of fear, but the but the willingness to confront it. So she has that. Um, which is really special. She has an incredible discipline, which I think really comes from her training at ballet school. Yeah. And she is undeniably cinematic. You point the camera at her, and there's a transparency that happens. You can see into her soul, and you can see into her psyche. Um, and some people have that, and some people don't. And she is absolutely... You point a camera at her, and she be and 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 you can't stop looking. Yeah, you, know? you can't stop yeah. searching. And so, as a as a filmmaker, she's the perfect, um, you know, human being to put on in your screen because you you never tire of of exploring her. And she's kind and, of the you know, fire again, to as an actor. She goes yep. for it. She she absolutely she's courageous, and she will try anything. And and. Uh, you kind of have yeah. a fire and ice thing going with her and Fassbender, huh? In the, in these roles. Well, absolutely. You know, Fassbender. You know, his character of Tom is all about duty. He's he's in his head. Um, his duty and his uh, you know his his honor is what saved him and you know allowed him to survive World War One. And he, when we really see him at the beginning of the movie, he is he's a dead man walking. Yeah. And he's just trying to live in this lighthouse and let time take its take its toll on him and just try to heal over the course of, of years. And, and lo and behold, he bumps into this woman who he falls in love with and she brings him back to life and she kind of reignites his heart. And, you know, I thought that was, that was something with, uh, you know, with, with Fassbender, I thought that he could play this man who was having this battle between his brain and his heart because, you know, I think he's one of the smartest actors you know, working today. I think he's a mental giant on the movie screen. You know, there's no, you know, when he's Magneto and he can, like, crush a aluminum can with his brain, like, I, I believe that Michael can do that. You know, Michael can affect you 
you know, because he's so smart and so powerful. But what I haven't seen with Michael before on screen is that his heart is the unlocking of his heart. Yeah. Um, and when I met him as a, as, and, and started to get to know him as a man, I, I, I saw this great heart and this great humor that he has. And, and, uh, and I thought putting him and Alicia together would be beautiful in a way to kind of unlock his heart, um, you know, on screen. Was there was there ever a version of the film where you thought you might have Michael and Alicia try the Australian accent? You know, in that time, in in uh, you know, in in the nineteen twenties, the Australian accent wasn't necessarily um, the broad accent that we uh, that we understand Australian accent to be today. And you know, so we did a lot of research and a lot of you know discussion about like what people would sound like back then and you know it was more of an immigrant population back then and so and so we you know we went uh you know we went with a much softer version of the accent and you know quite frankly you know I didn't want the movie to be all about accents you know and in terms of you know casting them I just wanted to cast the the you know I'll say this when I first read the book I wasn't necessarily hearing any accent I was just hearing people and right and you know, I didn't want that accent to ever necessarily get in the way, you know, of 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 the experience of me watching it, and, or of the experience of them doing it. So I felt like I found I, I had the world to choose the best actors and uh, you know the perfect actors, and I found the people that had the that were that were the right fit for the characters, regardless of you know whether they were from Australia or New Zealand or whatever. And you know, look, I shot the movie in New Zealand, and you know. It's it's a nineteen. It takes place in nineteen twenty. You know, and the book takes place in nineteen twenties in Western Australia. But the book also takes place in a fictitious place. It, it, Janus Island does not exist in real life, and no, neither does uh, Partridge's the the town with which they're from. So I felt I had some creative license as a filmmaker to tell this story that took place really between the viewer's eyes and the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I so it's not too much of a spoiler I don't think to say that at one point in the film a boat washes up with uh, a baby on it and that this yeah. couple looks after the baby. And this is a theme that's running through uh the last three of your features now, babies whose parents are not who they think they are. What's going on there, True. Derek? Can we talk about this? What's happening? You know, uh it, it during play, when I was uh screening Place Beyond the Pines, Ryan Coogler uh I met with him one day, you know, we were hanging out, and he was just like, what's up with this paternity thing you got going on? <laughs> I, had, I had no idea. Great like, What are you talking about? He was like, you, all these men are raising babies that aren't theirs. And, you know, like, some, something subconscious is, is, is coming out there, um, I guess. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, look, I'm interested in seeing men on screen. I'm, I'm interested in portraying masculinity in a different way on the screen. Um, than than maybe than maybe what I've seen before. You know, yeah. I'm a father myself, and I know my kids are everything to me, and so is my wife. You know, I'm basically my my life is very simple. I'm trying to be a good filmmaker, a good father, and a good husband. Yeah. And so when I make movies about these sort of things, I'm making movies about about exactly where I am in my life right now. These movies are reflections of you know all of my greatest fears and my greatest loves. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm obsessed with family. I'm, ex- I'm obsessed with telling stories of family on the screen. I feel like it's my mission as a filmmaker is to 
make these home movies up on screen. Um, you know, uh, when I was a kid, I was always just uh, obsessed with, with also, like, trying to take honest family pictures. You know, I've been doing this my whole life. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I used to think people lived on islands. Um, I remember when we would have company come over, um, I remember we would all change inside my house. You know, we would all turn into, like, the charming versions of ourselves, and then people would leave, right. and we'd go back to being real again. And, you know, with this book and with this story, I felt like I could take that literal metaphor and, and you know, project it up on the screen and really tell a story about how families and how, how families hold secrets. And uh, to me, the, the secrets that families hold, you know, cinema also holds those secrets. And so that, this, you know, like I said, this, I feel like is my mission. I wanted to ask you about that, about usually your movies are your stories and this is an adaptation. What are the difference uh, in terms of, burden of expectation people love this book are you getting any of that feedback and is that how is that different for you well yeah i mean look i chose to do an adaptation after the place beyond the pines because quite frankly i was sick of myself and sick of my own ideas <laughs> and i wanted to work with an undeniable story and i spent about a year trying to find something that 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 i could understand that i could actually do and when I found this book, you know, Steven Spielberg, you know, his, he had been a big fan of Blue Valentine, and so they had me in at DreamWorks, and they gave me a pile of their stuff, and I, the first book I saw was The Light Between Oceans, uh, you know, in the pile, and I thought it was a cinematic idea, you know, I thought it was this idea of uh, light, pro- you know, shining through a lens, and the, it, the beam projecting into darkness, I thought that was inherently cinematic, and... Uh, and so I, I went for it, and, and then, you know, it, it was about islands and families, and I felt like, geez, this is something I'm born to make, and then it dealt with legacy and uh, the idea of time and uh, scale and intimacy and all these things that I've been making, you know, dealing with in my own movies. Um, I just felt like I was born to make it, so I just went on the offensive and just, you know, eventually got the rights to do it and, and, and just made it, you know, I never once thought it wasn't my movie, you know, because I just... It was exactly what I wanted to do, and then, you know, in in terms of like staying true to the book, I you know I I remember I was on the C train and in you know riding home in Brooklyn, reading the end of this book, and I was weeping on the on the train, and it's so embarrassing to cry in public, especially you know. But the thing I thought to myself is that if any one of these people on the train were reading what I was reading, they would be crying too. <laughs> and you know that became my north star when I was making the movie is the how I felt. While I was reading it, my first impressions, you know, that became, you know, what I what I trusted. And, you know, all these years later, the movie's done, you know, the author of the book, Emma, you know, Margot Stedman, who's been just in, incredible, like incredible support, you know, she, she saw the first cut, and that's, you know, that's a, that's a terrifying moment for someone who, who, you know, I'm like a fan of hers, you know what I mean? I love yeah. her, I love her writing, and so I send her... The, the you know the a screener of the film to see what she thinks and you know she said that she spent the whole day after watching the movie weeping to herself she said because she felt that she was understood and she said wow. that that is was the point of her life was to try to be understood by other people wow. and that the adaptation understood her so to me that's that's like such a that's like the biggest compliment I could possibly get from someone I'm such a fan of that's 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 great. That's great to hear. You know, yeah. I'm I'm going to say this in my words. I know that you wouldn't say this right now, but 
compared to the previous films you've done, and, and, and I should note right up front, Michelle Williams was nominated for an Oscar for, for Blue Valentine, uh, very deservedly. Um, but compared to your earlier films, this one feels more awardsy, more Oscar-friendly. And I'm curious to know, do you have, are there films that are like Oscar movies that you like the, you know, past best pictures? I, I, I know that, you know, things like Women Under the Influence is a big, is a big influence of yours. You know, you're, you, you have a lot of art films that move you. Are there these more kind of what you might call prestige movies um, that, that really move you from the past? I mean, look, I love every genre of, of, of cinema. Um, you know, I love, um, uh, you know, David Lean movies as much as I love, uh, Toby Hooper movies. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. you know, and with this movie, what I really wanted to do was, yeah, John Cassavetes is my hero. And I, uh, but I also, you know, love, uh, Victor Fleming and I love David Lean, you know, yeah. and, um, and what I really wanted to do is tell this intimate, almost John Cassavetes movie set against the backdrop of a David Lean landscape. Yeah, um, you know where where the scale and the intimacy of these 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 t- the tiniest details of human interaction could be set against the backdrop of 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 epicness. You know, so the smallest human relationship could be seen as momentous. You know, that was the juxtaposition I was looking for. Does that answer? That definitely does. Now, the David Lean is a great um, kind of precedent to look to. I mean, obviously, the, the famous director of Lawrence of Arabia, among many other films. But it does have that. It, it's got the historical sweep. It's got these gorgeous vistas. Um, and I think that is what makes it feel more in the class of movies that are typically considered Oscar-y versus movies that are considered, you know, kind of arty. Uh, so I, I think that's yeah. great. That's fascinating. I want to ask you, okay, when you cast a Alicia and Michael or Michelle and Ryan, do you make sure they're good with kids first? Because you have to work so closely with these children. You get these amazing performances out of them. Is there like a babysitting test in, as part of the audition? <laughs> that's, you know, it, there's just a, a, a humanity test. Really. <laughs> I, 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 I tend not to uh, audition people, although I did. Uh, I did have uh, Alicia do some scenes for me, um, but I tend not to audition because yeah, w- what I'm really looking at in uh, when I meet with actors is humanity. I'm just looking about who they are as a as a as a human being, and I usually get a good sense of you know how they're going to be with kids. And yeah, but you know, every one of those people you mentioned, and I put Ava Mendez in there too. They're uh, they're all completely different right and they all are completely different with children um and they and they all are you know have so much love inside of them that i i would trust each one of them with my own children um and uh and that's really the test because then when you hire this you know little little actors like florence clary in this movie you have to you know their parents i have to be able to trust that they're going to take care of these kids and so yeah and then there's a lot of stuff we do behind the scenes to kind of develop a bond between them and, and the kid you know i know michael went swimming with florence quite a bit and you know alicia and florence went out on on special dates together and and they bonded you know, so that what you see on camera is like a real relationship. And also with Rachel, too, you know, and, you know, I knew it was like Rachel would be great, too, because she's a mom. Yeah. You know, and she has kids. And, and, and we could really talk, you know, Michelle, too, Michelle Williams. You know, we could really 
talk about ra- you know the raising of children. And now Ryan, you know, has his own kids, and so I'll be able to discuss that with him as well. You know, if we're fortunate enough to get another opportunity to make films together with a question, you know, questionable paternity. <laughs> well, well, we're all we're all looking forward to that. And three years from now, to twenty nineteen, that's that's uh, exactly that's our goal. Three years. That's my that's my schedule. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Derek. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and congratulations on the film. Yeah, thanks a lot. The pleasure is mine. I have to tell people it's her mother. I'm her mother. Someone knows that my girl is alive. You'll be safe. I'll protect you, I promise. You saw what we've done to her. It's too late. One day, this will all feel like a dream. With love forever. So that was Mike and Joanna talking with Derek Sanfrance, the director of The Light Between Oceans. That was a great interview, Joanna. It was interesting to hear him talk about how he's kind of a matchmaker on his movies. Yeah, well, I think it goes to the unusual way that he that he brings his movies about and the way that he blurs fact and fiction for them on the set. I think he said in that interview that he shot over 200 hours of footage that he cut down. So if you're play acting that you're in love with either Alicia Vikander or Michael Fassbender for 200 plus hours of footage, you know, I, I could see how that would get quite convincing. It wouldn't take much convincing, right, with that super talented, very attractive couple. But he's always, I think, going for a documentary style is what he said. And so if you are so immersed in that world, how can you avoid the tug? Yeah, you know, I want to go to an island and live in a lighthouse with Michael Fassbender or Alicia Vikander or really, any, you know... Any combination thereof. <laughs> you know, or both of them. I don't know. I don't know what they're into. Well, if they, you know, if they do a sequel, um, Light Between Oceans 2, <laughs> It's just I'll different oceans. Sure. <laughs> it's the Indian Ocean and the Arctic Ocean or something. I don't know. You could play the grown-up little girl and uh, oh. it'll, be, it'll be solid. Well, you know, I have to dust off my acting resume, but I think, yeah. The funny thing about that sort of full immersion, creating these circumstances where they could fall in love, is that it's definitely there in the movie. Like, the scenes sort of establishing this lighthouse, this kind of lonely life out there on the island, are really well done, and and, and you feel that kind of both kind of melancholy and, and being lonely, but it's also romantic and beautiful. And, and I think that, unfortunately, the broader movie kind of suffers for how immersive that initial part is you know because there's also this component with rachel weiss's character who's introduced really late in the movie but then becomes Mm. a major player and i kind of feel like the movie's a little lopsided because of that i I maybe just would have wanted to watch the lighthouse movie you know right part one yeah yeah between oceans part one where they fall in love and they find a little girl right (laughs) yeah and they they, like romp (laughs) <laughs> and milk goats or whatever it is they do. Yeah, and the music swells. And it's, I mean, one also funny thing about the movie is that it portrays Australia as like the windiest place you've ever been. <laughs> like there's a sound of roaring wind throughout almost the entire movie. Oh, interesting. Well, I mean, it's on an island in the ocean, yeah. so I'm sure it actually is. But anyway, it's just funny because there's so many shots of them walking around and Michael Fassbender has this beautiful 
sort of coat that billows behind him when he's walking up the stairs to the lighthouse. And so, you know, he's a beautiful filmmaker. He has all these striking visual moments. And I think, unfortunately, like the story kind of plays second fiddle to all that. My guess is that's why the movie is not getting a really huge, you know, sort of November, December release when it maybe seemed like it could have a while ago. When was this release date chosen for it? Um, not terribly long ago. I don't know exactly, but the movie has been finished, I think, for close to two years. Well, I think they filmed it two years ago, but I think he had to take a while to edit down the 200 plus hours of footage. Right. But yeah, it has been finished for a while. And you would expect with Alicia Vikander winning the Oscar last year and Michael Fassbender, like the perennial bridesmaid, that it would get a bigger, splashier Oscar season. And, you know, being based on a beloved book and mm-hmm. having that sort of romantic familial drama pull to it. I know you've talked about August Oscar releases, talking about Flores Foster Jenkins and, and those sort of options, but it does seem early for it. Well, and this isn't just, this isn't an, really an August release. It's a Labor Day release, which is oh, true, never true. great. And, and like the thing about this is I was an M rooting for this movie. Like I love San France as a filmmaker and I, I like everyone in the movie and I love a big sweeping period novel adaptation, romance drama. I mean, the English patient's one of my favorite movies, <laughs> uh, which is equally as beautiful. Well, it's, it's not equally beautiful. English Patient is the prettiest movie ever made, next to maybe Talented Mr. Ripley. But, you know, I, li- I like that. And, you know, there was a while when this movie was sort of rumored to be at Cannes, either last year or this year, and it skipped all those festivals. And it just, it seems to me like an example of a movie that has exactly the right pedigree. Like, on paper, this makes complete sense. And then something just in the, I don't know, in the, the coming together of everything in the, the filmmaking process just didn't quite gel in the way that it could have and i'm not sure how to fix that or if you could but i don't know i still think it's worth seeing will you see it oh definitely i mean i I read i read the book and i quite liked the book it's very melodramatic yeah you know all the while reading it i was wondering about the film adaptation (laughs) like it's so hard to translate melodrama to screen and not make it look overcooked the naturalistic approach that he took to this gives me some hope But, you know, thinking about it as an almost remake of Blue Valentine, where you've got this romantic courtship sort of phase of the movie, and then you've got the harrowing familial fallout part of of the movie. When I saw Blue Valentine, it's like watching two different movies, but I think it's more seamlessly blended because it goes back and forth in time whereas this it might just be it's possible i'm just speculating based on what you said it might be too jarring of a tone shift to go from this first half that's all like swoony and then this back half which is this terrible morality tale of like the telltale heart basically um and everything falls apart spoiler alert everything falls apart yeah yeah but um I, i don't know i'll be very curious to see how he balances that and to you it sounds like he didn't quite stick the landing on it. I'll be curious to see. And, you know, if I can watch anyone cry and have moral anguish about something, it's definitely Michael Fassbender, Alicia mm-hmm. Vikander, and probably Rachel Weisz. So, mm-hmm. you know, I do want to see it. Yeah, I mean, it's well worth seeing. And the funny thing about talking about that balance between the earlier part of the movie and the second part is that, like, that title, The Light Between Oceans, is full of metaphor. It's a metaphor for, I think, forgiveness post-war. Like, it's a post-World War One story. I think it's also 
a metaphor for the child is the light between two. I don't know. But uh, unfortunately, the movie doesn't spend enough time on the second ocean, which is Rachel Weisz. Like, we meet the second ocean too late. And I think that if he had woven in, in her story in with Fassbender and Vikander, from the onset, this kind of grand convergence would feel a bit more hefty. It's funny. I think in the book, it's meant to be a surprise. Like, you're right. everything's humming along, and Rachel Weisz's character comes in as like this wet blanket to this happy ever after sort of thing. But it's right there in the preview. So I feel like anyone going into this movie already knows that that's coming. Yeah. So I think yeah. it would have been interesting for him to take a less faithful adaptive approach and yeah, tell her story, which is actually quite a touching love story in, in its own. Yeah. yeah. And, and sort of weave it into the front half of the movie. So you have these parallel things going throughout. And her love story is so much of the crux of the film's ideas of like about forgiveness and getting past war and conflict and she falls in love with the German guy. And I don't know. I think that that could have added some texture to the movie. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad you guys did that interview. I'm jealous that you got to talk to him, but... If nothing else... I think you're giving Light Between Oceans a recommendation. Maybe not the most enthusiastic recommendation, but a recommendation. But if at nothing else, we got this delightful Oscar season couple out of this movie. So we can thank it for that. Exactly. So one interesting thing also about this interview uh, is there's, you know, there was some talk about like gender and how he casts his movies. And I think he said that he wants to make stories about men or where men are at the center and then he casts a man first. What were your thoughts on his comments about how he casts and how he looks at the roles in his movies? I don't think we can look at any of his three movies, which are, you know, The Place Beyond the Pines, uh, Light Between Oceans, and Blue Valentine. Nailed all of those articles. The Blue Between the Valentines. (laughs) The Blue Between the Valentines. I don't think we can look at them and say there aren't good parts for women in those. Like, you know, Michelle Williams, I believe, got at least a Golden Globe nomination, not an Oscar nomination. She got an Oscar nomination for that. Yeah, Yeah, she got the Oscar for that. Mm -hmm. She was great in that. And, uh, you know, Eva Mendes was great in The Place Beyond the Pines, I thought. And I will leave it up to you to say how Alicia Vikander and and Rachel Weisz are in this. But I think what's true about this particular director is, despite the differences in the stories, and this is something I think Mike touched on when talking to him, it almost seems like the same story told three different times, even though one of them's a novel adaptation. And so I think he sees himself very strongly in these protagonists. And so that's who he casts first, uh, these proxies for himself. You know, it was Ryan Gosling twice and then Michael Fassbender. So you could say that the woman comes in second only because he's thinking of his own perspective first and the character he relates to most first. And maybe that down the line won't serve him that well because who knows how many times we can see this sort of similar story told with different dresses put on it. But I don't know. Do you feel like after all of his process, which I guess is very initially at least male-focused, do you feel like the final product has equal opportunities for the actor and the actress to give nuanced layered performances. Well, I mean, you know, it's funny hearing him say that it's sort of like a bell rang in my head and it was like, you know, the movie light between oceans is, uh, about uh, one woman who loses her husband and child and another woman who has had a really harrowing tragic experience with miscarriages and not being able to have a baby herself but the movie's about a man between them. Like, he, you know, and it's it, it's like these are two huge stories about two women that then are sort of 
filtered through the lens of Fassbender's character and his kind of guilt and moral anguish and whatnot, which is okay, you know, in a narrative sense, but it is interesting that the movie's focus kind of tilts in a way that it you know, I wonder if a woman director or who, you know, who else would have maybe just sort of refocused the movie a little bit. But, you know, we won't know. And I haven't read the book, so I don't really know whose perspective we're, we're getting most of the story from. Well, I will say, I think you get most of it from yeah. Fassbender's character, but it hops around inside the heads of the three okay. main characters. So you, you're, you are in their heads at certain points, but I think for, for, especially for the first half, you're very much in his head and then later you sort of crawl inside these other women and even the little girl at one point are you ever in the perspective of the lighthouse um yeah <laughs> no that would be some great like virginia wolf-esque uh, writing that did not make it into this movie but there's just a hundred pages where it's just like I am a lighthouse. <laughs> my yeah. beam slices through the air um yeah, yeah. yeah that would i would have read that book for sure um yeah, it's very interesting that that you say that. And I and I do think well, he did say that, you know, the author who is a woman, I guess when she saw his cut of the movie, she cried because she said she felt understood for the first time. So, you know, we at least have that female endorsement of of his uh, portrayal of the novel. But yeah, it it is a very female story told through the lens of this very morally conflicted, yeah. you know, man. So, you know, true. and you know, tale as old as time and that's fine. And he's going to make the movie he's going to make. And, and I think that that's, we sort of have to accept that at some point. Well, my answer to that is always when male filmmakers talk about that, talk about how this is my perspective. You know, I want to make a film from my perspective. Like this is something we heard from Richard Linklater earlier this year with everybody wants some. He's like, well, this is my perspective. So that's what's up on the screen. And so then my answer and actually Linklater's answer is always let's have more women right. given right. that opportunity exactly. too. Right. So like, let's hope to foster an environment where more female screenwriters, more female directors can just be like, well, it's my perspective. I cast the woman first because that's yeah. my perspective. I you would, know, so you know, what? I really want to see out. a Catherine Bigelow sweeping literary period romance. Wouldn't that be interesting? Yes, it'd be fascinating. Right. Well, I'm going to call her. I'm going to call Jessica Chastain because, you know, we're, we're close. Personal Get them friends, on the phone. And we're going to make that movie happen. <laughs> That'll be the sequel. The Light Between Oceans to her story. I don't I don't know. <laughs> So for our final segment today, we're going to go back to the Una discussion, particularly to Rooney Mara and her potential Oscar chances this year. And then look at the first time that Rooney Mara was up for an Oscar, which was all the way back in 2012, when she was nominated for her role as Lisbeth Salander. 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 Salander is always how I... I always just see Salander. (laughs) Anyway, she was nominated for the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Didn't win and probably was never a favorite to win. But there was an upset that year. So, Joanna, do you want to read us who was nominated? Yeah, this is a funny, unintentional bookend to our talk about Jean Dujardin and the artist, because it's the same year, That's right? right? Yeah. So we've got Michelle Williams was nominated for My Week with Marilyn. Um, Rudy Mara nominated for The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Glenn Close nominated for Albert Nobbs. Viola Davis nominated mm-hmm. for The Help. And Meryl Streep won right. for the Iron Lady. That's a fascinating year because there are like several narratives the most happening. Or, uh, I mean, yes. the, the most yes. tragic being Glenn Close because, like, you got you, that's her. That was her sixth nomination. Has never won. She's sort of the always the bridesmaid. And for that movie, which is like 
I mean, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago had Oscar all over it. It was a period piece about a social issue. Like, it was just so much. But it was just, it came at a, at a hard year. There were two other performances, you know, that were really kind of just outshining it. So that's interesting. And also, I think the Michelle Williams nomination, um, if I can be so blunt, is bullshit because that movie is awful and she's ter- terrible in it. Uh, <laughs> and, um, it, you know, I like her as an actress, but yeesh, that is not <laughs> that is not a good performance. Who, who's your favorite among that group? I mean, that also had energy it? behind it, though, for some reason. Because, well, I think only not not that I loved the movie, but I think just because, as you say, in a different time, a Marilyn Monroe sort of narrow focus biopic with Eddie oh, Redmayne. Sure. Um, I guess that was before but, Eddie Redmayne. A young, up and coming British actor, let's Oscar say. Great, it could have been Hugh Grant. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then, like, it was a terrible movie, but there was something about it. I guess the reason I feel like it smells like Oscar is because it's a movie about Hollywood to a certain degree. And we always talk about how movies about Hollywood get the acting body excited. That was her third nomination after Brokeback and Blue Valentine. And and I feel like I think Michelle Williams is such an interesting actress, especially coming from the teen soap pedigree that she comes Mm -hmm. from. Uh, So I would love to see her win for something yeah and i mean michelle williams won a bunch of critics awards and film festival awards and an indie spirit award for my week with Marilyn. so it had just like that kind of spark around it for me my favorite performance of the year was violet well no i don't even but like of the, that of the nominated, but I thought violet davis yeah. was <laughs> I thought Viola Davis was really great in The Help, and she had just been really great yeah. in Doubt, and so I was just, re- I was convinced yeah. that she was going to win. I was so pulling for her to win. So for Meryl Streep, who we all never question is a genius, we all know she's a genius, she's got a mountain of Oscars, and The Iron Lady, I did not like at all. So for her to win was just an affront and it's hard to be mad at Meryl Streep winning any awards and she is a genius but I was just like for yeah. this movie with these other nominees well, what are and, you even and, talking and her about? win compounds the tragedy of Glenn Close because the, the, the kind of spirit of her win was like oh it's time to give Meryl an Oscar again it's been like 30 something years and meanwhile Glenn is like I have never won one like like she has two already <laughs> like you know it was just this kind of really funny thing where I just everyone sort of collectively decided oh it's just Meryl's time again and it's like well, okay is it really for this? And I agree with you that I was really rooting for Viola Davis to win. You know, I like The Help Fine. I think it's a fun movie, but it's not high art necessarily. But and not that you need to, you know, be in high art to win an Oscar. But, you know, I just was I liked I like her. I think she's a great actress. I think that that was a big moment for her to potentially win, you know, and it would have been cool if she and Octavia Spencer had both won. I don't think that's ever happened at the Oscars. You know, so but also going back to Rooney, she's really great in that movie. I mean, it's not a spectacular movie i don't think or a girl with a dragon tattoo but it was quite a coming out for her yeah it was a good announcement of like here i am this is what i can do this part is not just a dramatic haircut uh there's a lot more behind it and let's see well yeah she had just been in the social network a small part you know she had a couple credits before girl with the dragon Tattoo, but it was really an announcement of like here i am you're gonna take me seriously from Mm. now on and you know everything she's done since i think has been quite yeah you know it it was a good coming out but you know the, the funny thing with the mara girls i like both her and her sister kate a lot but like when you're the children of the owners of the new york giants it's like it's a little harder to root for them because it's like well they can you know they're fine (laughs) like they 
I don't think they ever cringe when looking at their bank statement. You know what I mean? Yeah. But anyway, so uh, yeah, I, so you're going to say Viola for this? Yeah, Viola. And I mean, uh, you know, with much love and respect to Shondaland and the fact that it's not um, at all a disgrace for a film actress to do no. television these days, it felt like a step back, that she was on a trajectory. And I feel like if she had won that Oscar, I don't know we would have gotten How to Get Away with Murder. Maybe that would be a shame because I, I know that you quite like the show. A lot of people like the show. But it felt like if she had won that Oscar, maybe then she would be more in a, I'm an Oscar winning leading film actress category that she is. And I feel like she will get there eventually, but that was the first time. that. Yeah. And you know, I think I, I, I really liked the first season of, of how to get, how to get away with murder, but, um, it's, she's above the material. I mean, you know, she's better than the material. Definitely. You know, but the thing with the Oscar win, you never know. It comes with either a curse or a blessing or, or kind of a mix of both. And sometimes it kind of too narrowly defines an actor's career. And, you know, now they can only do serious prestige movies or whatever. And I think that maybe she's unburdened by that now. But yeah, I know what you mean. It does feel like once you get locked into that TV world, even if there's no indignity to it, but like it might be hard for her to get a role in a movie that well although fences well yeah so i was about to say that like this is another opportunity this year is she you said she she won the tony for fences right and uh you know she'll be appearing opposite her stage partner denzel washington and that movie has a lot of energy behind it especially now and yeah so i'm i'm having sight unseen of all the options just based on my heart, I'm rooting for against Davis potentially Rooney Mara again. Hey, wouldn't? It? Oh wait. Oh no! It's like a Hillary Swank okay, and so they, so they're qualifying. You have to have a movie out by December 31st. Do you think we can make a movie with and for Glenn Close <laughs> <laughs> before December 31st? I mean, shoot. We have to write it, shoot it, edit it. I've been get it rooting for Albert Knobs too for a really long time. So okay. like a like a All right, well, we well, should... maybe. <laughs> Well, we should wrap this up so we can go do that. All right, so that's it for us. Thanks for listening to Little Gold Men. Uh, Please do remember to rate and subscribe in iTunes if you love the show. If you don't like the show, don't do that, because we don't want to hear from that. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at Little Gold Men, and I'm at Twitter um, myself at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And Joanna, where can people find you on Twitter? Well, you can find me at Joe Wrote This. All right. And, um, And, you know, I think we should mention that I mean, you've been doing it more than everyone else, but we will be tweeting from the Little Gold Men account. We're trying to get that a little more engaged with the, the fan community. So please do follow us at Little Women, and uh, we'll hopefully interact with you. We got a couple really good suggestions, one of which I really want us to do, but it's going to require us to do a little research first. So let us brush up on our Oscar right. history. So that's then, a teaser for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we are listening to your suggestions for which Oscar races we should relitigate. Your pleas are not falling on deaf ears. <laughs> A Little Gold Men is produced by Sam Dingman and edited by Ilana Milner. And thanks, as always, to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for best response to the question, will you be attending my Labor Day party, goes to Joanna Robinson. Right, with the flashiest, whitest cape you've ever seen.